When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Congratulations, everybody. You made it. This is the final Book of Mormon episode for Unshaken for this 2020 year of Come Follow Me. I'm still recovering from COVID, so here I am at home in my quarantine quarters. Same backdrop as last time, except you might notice this little note that's above my head. My 14-year-old son snuck in, probably assuming that I was going to be filming here again, and added his, his own touch. This is our quirkiest child. He's hilarious. And if you can't read it, it says, Hi, Unshaken viewers. This is his son, CJ. Keep listening. <laughs> I'd say that's good advice from my son. He's kind of my campaign manager of sorts. A couple of months ago, he received a, a text message by accident. Somebody sent it to the wrong number. It ended up being a young single adult that was trying to reach their stake executive secretary to be able to set up an interview with the stake presidency to, to be sealed in the temple. And rather than just... Uh, let them know they had the wrong number and move forward. My 14-year-old said this. They said, the, the person said, just kidding, sorry, I sent this text to the wrong number. And he's, my son said, congratulations, I'm a 14-year-old boy. And she responded, well, congratulations on being 14. He said, thank you. If he can't fit you in, I will see what I can do. I have friends in higher places. My dad works for the church. The woman on the other side of the line said, good to know. I'll let you know if it doesn't work out. Highly appreciated offer. I love that these two uh, kindred spirits found each other by accident. My son responded, gotcha. And then I guess he couldn't resist. He said, you should check out his YouTube channel right now. It's called Unshaken. And he is an institute teacher for the University of Utah. So he has a YouTube channel called Unshaken where he posts Come Follow Me lessons each week. She responded, dang, we, just, we're, we are checking it out. He's a big deal. Got loads of subscribers. And my son wrote, totally. You should subscribe. He's an awesome dad. He deserves it. And she said, will do. Cool to talk to such a supportive son. Not a ton of those out there anymore. And he said, thanks. Have a nice day. When he told me about this conversation, I just died laughing, thinking, well, you found me another subscriber, son. I, I'm so grateful. So whether you found this channel on your own or with the help of a quirky 14-year-old that got a wrong number, I'm glad that you're here. And I hope that you will follow CJ's advice and keep listening. We have the Doctrine and Covenants starting in January, and it's an incredible book of Scripture that unfortunately sometimes goes underappreciated. There's no story there. It's all revelation. But talk about cutting to the chase. I've probably taught the Doctrine and Covenants more often than I've taught the Book of Mormon. And I love that capstone Scripture as much as I love the keystone that we've been studying this year. Now, if you have kept watching thus far, you may recall that I started this channel back in March when COVID hit and Forest Institute to go online. And since then, it's been incredible to see this community grow around the world. I did the math this morning. And if you've been watching all the videos since we started, which would have been mid-Jacob back in March, it's been just shy of 95 hours of material, which is just short of four days worth. That's a lot of time in the Book of Mormon together. And I hope that it's been a blessing to you as it has been to me. 
at the end of institute semesters, I used to joke with my students that if you do the math, most institute semesters are 28 classes of 50 minutes each, which comes out to just shy of 24 hours of time together. It feels like a lot longer because it goes through the course of four or five months semester. But at the end of it all, we've spent one day together. So as I always say to them, I hope it's been a good day. For you who have spent your Book of Mormon year with me, I hope it's been a good four days. It feels like I've known you longer than that, and I'm grateful for the time we've spent together in Scripture. More than anything, I hope you've sensed the fulfillment of President Ezra Taft Benson's promise, that a power will begin to flow into your life the moment you begin a serious study of the Book of Mormon. I have loved reading your comments. I'm sorry that I can't respond to all of them. But to see the, the experience that you've had in the Book of Mormon this year, many of you having studied it for decades and already loving the book, but to have studied it more seriously than perhaps you ever have before and to feel that spirit flow into you. It has been a privilege for me to be able to share with you some of the things that matter most to me. And I'm grateful for the spirit's ability to convey in ways that I can't what this book means for all of us. Now, as we close the book today, in some ways so fitting that we would end with Moroni's words. He ends his dispensation, but he begins ours, scripturally speaking, that is. He gives us the last chapter of the Book of Mormon and the first revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants. Not in terms of the order we find it in our scripture currently. Section 1 takes, the, takes precedent on that. But section 2 is actually the first chronological revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants. And it's Moroni, quoting the words of Malachi. And so to see this great Book of Mormon prophet bridge the gap of 1,400 years and end one book of Scripture and be able to begin the other, it's almost like he is passing the baton to himself in this scriptural relay race with a passage of 14 centuries in between. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of today's lesson. But I'm amazed at the way he begins this chapter. If it were me and I was writing and I knew this was the final chapter to go into this book of Scripture, the greatest artifact of my civilization, the most important thing we could pass down to posterity. I think I would kind of drum roll and try to present this in some way that, do you understand what I, the, the, the final punctuation marks I'm putting on this incredible book of scripture? But instead he starts this final chapter with, in such an understated, almost casual way. He simply says, now I, Moroni, write somewhat as seemeth me good. Wait, that's it? It's not, it, no drum roll, no cymbal crash, no crescendo of the final words of the Book of Mormon. Uh, no, I'm just planning on writing a few things that seem good to me. One of the things that I'm so grateful that I've learned over the years is what Elijah learned when he was up on the mountain and learned that the voice of God doesn't have to be found in earthquakes or in whirlwinds or great fires, but that it's simply found in a still small voice. I think too often we, we are waiting for earth-shattering kinds of veil-parting, light-shining, angels-speaking, and then I'll know what is true, and then I'll know what to do with my life. That's what real revelation is. And yet to find something as powerful as Moroni chapter 10, with its incredible promise, with its discussion of spiritual gifts, with its emphasis on coming unto Christ and being perfected in Him, this, as far as Moroni was concerned, was just something that was on my mind. It was in my heart. It seemed like a good thing to share. And so I did. I remember years ago when my dad was called to be a patriarch. 
and he called and let me know about the news. And, and I said to him, whoa, Dad, I don't mean to add any pressure to you, but I can't imagine a scarier calling. To have some kid you don't even know come in and you're supposed to be able to reveal to them things that only Heavenly Father knows. Wow, that's pressure. And my dad just smiled and he said, yeah, I can see how you might feel that way about it. And I thought, oh, how I might feel, which means you don't feel. Okay, that's why you're the patriarch and I'm not. It's, he's just in tune. He has those spiritual gifts. But I remember a few months into his service, calling and just talking about it. and said, what's it like to give a patriarchal blessing? And his answer surprised me. I mean, he shared some interesting, some fascinating things. But then he said, come on, son, you know what it's like. You've given priesthood blessings. And at first I was taken aback, like, wait, no, it's, it's got to be a different degree. I mean, you are a patriarch. And yes, there's truth there. He's declaring lineage. He, that, that, there is a, a, a mantle that comes with the patriarch. But it was interesting to just rethink my own perspective on priesthood blessings and realizing, am I taking those as seriously as my dad is taking his responsibility to give priesthood blessings? What he said didn't lower patriarchal blessings in my mind. It elevated priesthood blessings and made me realize that it doesn't have to be some veil parting of angels singing kind of moment. Moroni 10 is a life-changing chapter, but I, I love the fact that it's couched in such simple language from the very beginning. He's just writing a few things that seemed good to him. That is the spirit of revelation. Heed it. Now he's writing to the Lamanites, whom he terms his brethren. We saw his father Mormon do that earlier. Here Moroni is doing it as well. And that always astounds me. That this man, who has spent his lifetime fighting Lamanites, doesn't refer to them as his enemies, but as his brethren. Every person he's ever known, everyone who's ever mattered to him, has fallen at the hands of a Lamanite sword. And yet there is nothing but goodwill forgiveness, a desire to share the gospel with them. If you go to the title page of the Book of Mormon, where Moroni is putting truly his finishing touches on this book before he buries the plates, it says that it was written first and foremost to the Lamanites, who are a remnant of the house of Israel, and also to Jew and Gentile. That covers everybody. But Lamanites first. He later says that the book is written to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel, again, Lamanites first and foremost, these things. First, what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers. By the time you get this record, you will have forgotten who you are and whose you are. But to be reminded of the great things God has done for them, that you'll be able to see his hand in their lives and hopefully make it easier for you to see his hand in your own. The second reason, that they may know the covenants of the Lord, specifically that they are not cast off forever. You're not just a broken branch from the tree of Israel. You're not just a scattered remnant. You are someone whom God remembers. You are not cast off in spite of your own wickedness. I think that is one of the great messages of the Book of Mormon, that there is hope for all of us, that if Lamanites can be considered brethren by one who wants to remind them across the centuries that God promised to bring you home, you are part of his covenant and he has not cast you off forever, then how could the book not give me hope that there's still a chance for me to come home to God as well?
The third and final, perhaps the most famous purpose of the Book of Mormon mentioned here is to convince the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting some, himself unto all nations, to the old world in the Bible, to the new world in the Book of Mormon, to the lost tribes of the house of Israel, in whatever record that will someday be forthcoming. We are one human family with one Father in heaven over us all, one Savior that came to bring us all back to God. And it is to Moroni's brethren, the Lamanites and all of us, that he is writing. Now he ends verse 1 by putting things in historical context. 420 years have passed since the sign was given of the coming of Christ. That's a lot of loneliness. As he has been wandering with plates under his arm, waiting for the right moment to be able to deliver them to God in hopes that he would someday deliver them to his intended audience. And as he says in verse 2, right before he is to seal up these records, I just want to speak a few words by way of exhortation unto you. No more historical explanation. Now it is personal exhortation. I'm, not, I'm done telling stories. I'm done recording history. But you, my readers, need to do a few things based on the record that is before you. Now we're about to see this exhortation take the form of what we call Moroni's promise. One of the most famous things in the Book of Mormon. Missionaries make a beeline to it as soon as they can with their investigators, helping them see that there is a way that you can find out for yourself that the Book of Mormon is true. The same could be said of any other book of scripture. You can find out that it's true from the Holy Ghost as well. But this is the only book that makes it so explicit. I sometimes wish the Bible was just as clear that that is going to be the source of testimony for that great book of Scripture as well. I've talked with evangelical ministers, for example, that just want to take down the Book of Mormon because of its lack of archaeological evidence. And I'll usually say to them, well, there's a little bit more archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon than you know, and there's a little less archaeological evidence for the Bible than you would probably care to admit. But let me really put the question to you. Is that why you believe in the Bible? because of archaeological evidence? And they'll usually say, well, well, there's so much, there's so much proof of all these things and the places still exist. And all. I said, yo, that's great. That's fine. But is that why you believe in the Bible? You mean to tell me that when you preach from the pulpit on Sunday, you preach archaeological sermons? When was the last time you did that? And they'll all admit, well, I, I never preach archaeology. Exactly. Because you know that the power of the Bible, which I believe in just like you do, doesn't come from its archaeological proof. It comes from the power of God that breathes through its pages. And the same is true of the Book of Mormon. I sometimes worry about my Bible-believing friends. If their biblical belief isn't really faith-based at all, or simply this, this sense of security and this, this impregnable fortress that the Bible has to be true. It's, it's so historical. It's so, it's so archaeologically founded. That's not why we believe it. At least that's not why we should. There are plenty of scholars that also happen to be skeptics. They have the same proof before them as any believer. But they have not yet experienced the power of God. They haven't opened themselves to it. To be honest... It actually makes me more grateful for the relative scarcity of archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. 
because it forces me to stand on the legs of faith. It forces me to look higher rather than dig deeper to find evidence of its truthfulness that that will come from God through his spirit. Now, as I said, there is power in the promise and we usually jump straight to verse four and five to be able to find it. I actually had a weird experience in college with a roommate of mine. His name was Jason. The guy was hilarious. We had a great time together. And a lot of our friendship was based on, on ripping on each other. It was almost junior high-esque, okay? He was incredibly quick-witted, and we just had fun making fun of each other and criticizing, you know, ripping on each just having, laughing at each other all the time. And I remember one day, I have no idea where this was coming from, but I decided I would rip on him in Spanish that day instead of English. And the irony of that was that Jason doesn't speak Spanish. I learned it on my mission. He served English speaking. And so one day I just launched into this thing and went off on it. He could tell that I was making fun of him. I, again, that was, that was what our friendship was based on. Not entirely. But I started just going off on him in Spanish. And he was looking at me like, what, the, what are you saying? And he didn't understand a word, but he would immediately just jump back in and go, oh, yeah, well, you, you want mild sauce or hot sauce with your order? And I'm like, oh, and then I would launch into something else, and he would, he'd make fun of that. And it was just going back and forth, Spanish to English, Spanish to English, and we both knew we were making fun of each other. And we were just laughing and having a good time with it. Now, this is the part where it gets weird. And I have no idea why I did this. My mind was probably just racing for some you know, some Spanish language that would just come rolling off the tongue so I could just sound off on him without having to think too hard about translating things for myself. And for some, well, for whatever reason, what popped into my head was Moroni's promise. I had quoted those verses so many times in Puerto Rico as a missionary that that Spanish just flowed without thinking. And so I looked at him and without missing a beat, I just said, ¿Y cuando recibáis esas cosas quisiera preguntéis a Dios el Eterno Padre? And he just stopped. Again, not understanding that language any more than he'd understand, understood the other language. But he stopped in his tracks. And instead of jumping on my case or making fun of me again, he just looked at me and said, what was that? And I kind of sheepishly said, um, that was Moroni's promise. He's like, whoa, that, that was cool. It, it, it impressed us both that even though he didn't understand what was being said, there was something different to it. And it stopped him in his tracks. That's what this promise is meant to do for each of us, especially when we come to understand its language. Now to do that, we're gonna to get to verse four and five and try to pick apart each phrase, but the promise itself really does need to begin in verse three. If we skip ahead to four and five, we might think that what Moroni is really emphasizing here is the Book of Mormon, where what he's emphasizing in reality is the Book of Mormon's own emphasis, which is Jesus Christ. Look at this in verse 3. Behold, I would exhort you that when ye shall read these things, and then his first caveat, if it be wisdom in God that ye should read them, now, part of me wants to say, well, what do you mean, Moroni? Of course it's going to be wisdom in God for people to read this. This is scripture. This is words from him. But think about that. If it's wisdom in God, that implies that there are times where it might not be. In fact, Moroni himself would understand that well. He wants to get it to the Lamanites, right? But would it be wisdom in God to give them the record right then? Definitely not. They would destroy it and destroy him in the process. They were in no way prepared to receive its message. And so Moroni played the long game 
and had faith in God's long game as well. He trusted the process. Someday it will be wisdom in God that these words will come forth. And I will wait until then. I remember as a missionary, I would invite, exhort people to do things all the time. And I don't know if this is just a Latino thing, but so often they'd say, oh, si Dios quiere, which means if God wants to. It's kind of a way of saying, well, God willing. In Arabic, they say similar things with inshallah, which just, again, God willing. And in, and in reality, it's a beautiful way of just of respecting God's will in all things. But the way it came out of a lot of people's mouths on my mission, it was just kind of this thing you said, like, I don't really want to accept your invitation. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. Well, si Dios quiere. But whenever they said it, the language itself just kind of riveted my attention because I was like, oh, si, el quiere. God wants this. Of course, it's wisdom in him. But again, it might not always be. If you have friends or family that you want to share the gospel with, whether they're, they've never been members of our church or perhaps they have fallen away, and you're just looking for any opportunity to be able to remind them of spiritual things, teach them truth, always keep a discerning eye out for when the time is right. Now, I don't want you to overthink this. I think our default position should always be, it's probably wisdom in God to do it. Don't wait for an engraven invitation. But recognize that there will be times where the Spirit does pull you back, rein you in. The way he did for Mormon when he was told as a youth, don't preach the gospel right now. There are times where we end up casting pearls before swine. And it not only does them no good, but how does that verse end? They turn again and rend you. I don't know what it is about pearls and pigs, but the two don't go together very well. The, the pearls make the, the pigs angry. They're going to turn on you for that. And I think sometimes if we're, if we're trying to force feed spirituality on people or ramrod revelation down their throats, it's not wisdom in God that we do that. So be bold, but not overbearing. Be diligent, but be temperate in all things. Bridle your passions so that you will be filled with love. Look for opportunities, but recognize that sometimes they're simply not present. And we need to seek the wisdom of God to know when it is wisdom in God for us to share the things that matter most to us. Remember that phrase from Alma 32? When he turns around and sees the poor and recognizes, whoa, they are in a preparation to receive the word. Now is the perfect time. It is wisdom in God that they should receive these things. I am a firm believer that if we have eyes to see if we are praying for opportunities, and if God knows that we are willing to open our mouths whenever it seems the time is right, then he will present those opportunities to us. And again, more often than not, make sharing the gospel your default position and be open to the times when the Spirit pulls you back and, say, and says, not, not right now. Not right, right now, it's not wisdom in God to bring these things up. I'm glad you're ready, but wait for a better moment. Now, once we have the timing down, what's the real message of verse 3? He is exhorting us that we would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men. From the creation of Adam, even down until the time that you shall receive these things and ponder it in your hearts. Now, that changes everything. We sometimes try to summarize Moroni's promise with, I think it's even words from an old primary song, search, ponder, and pray. 
search the scriptures, ponder their message, and pray if it's true. Now, that's a good summary, but specifically speaking in verse 3, what is it we're supposed to ponder? He said, ponder it in your hearts. But he's talking about reading these things. That's plural. So wouldn't, if he was talking about, think about the Book of Mormon, wouldn't it be ponder them in your hearts? Ponder the, these things, this, these pages, these chapters? No, he says ponder it. And what's the antecedent of that pronoun? What's the it we're supposed to be pondering? How merciful the Lord hath been to all of us. Unto the children of men from the creation of Adam. So they were going from the very first moments of scriptural history until the times that you shall receive these things. So we've gone from scriptural history to personal history. From scriptural figures to you, yourself. You're involved here. Remember Moroni staring out of the camera at you. I speak to you as if you were present and though you are not. Or remember the title page. This is to help you Lamanites remember the great things that God has done for your fathers so that you can recognize the great things he's done for you as well. Ponder that. Remember God's mercy. Think about that as you have seen it played out in page after page of this record and in the record of your own life. Now, this is the last chapter of the Book of Mormon. This is supposed to let us know what we should have been reading all along. And if we had eyes to see, we would have known that from the very beginning as well. This is the end bookend of the Book of Mormon. Well, what's in the front bookend? The very first chapter, 1 Nephi chapter 1. If you've ever had to write a paper for English class or history class, you've probably been told to make sure that you have a thesis statement in it that is clear. That comes across near the beginning. That explains what you're writing the paper for. What, is it, what point are you trying to make? In hopes that the reader will see that early on and think, oh, yeah, that's, that's a worthwhile uh, reason to continue turning pages. Well, Nephi must have passed all of his English and history classes because he gives us a clear thesis statement at the end of his very first chapter. Good placement. This is when he's describing what his father's up against, the opposition from the Jews in Jerusalem. But then he says this at the end, and it goes beyond just his father's experience. Chapter 1 of 1 Nephi ends with this thesis statement. But behold, I, Nephi, will show unto you that's good thesis statement language. The purpose of my paper is to prove, da, 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 da. I will show unto you, here it is, that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. You see the point that Nephi is trying to make and that his prophetic successors will continue to make throughout the next thousand years of Nephite history? God is merciful. He is a Lord of tender mercies. And if you choose him through your faith, then he chooses you in return and showers out those tender mercies so that you can become mighty to the power of deliverance. He would deliver Lehi from his persecutors in Jerusalem. He would deliver this first family to a new promised land. He would deliver Nephites from Lamanites. He would deliver Jacob from Sherem or Alma from Korahor. He would deliver Alma and Amulek from the people of Ammonihah. He would deliver spiritually the people of King Benjamin that were changed through faith on the name of Jesus Christ. In a way, he would even deliver Abinadi through the flames, even as he delivered Alma through Abinadi's dying message. He would deliver the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. He would deliver the sons of Mosiah on their missions. He would deliver Samuel the Lamanite. He, God is a God of deliverance. 
And it's because of his tender mercies that he delivers us at all. It's because he loves us. It's not just his job. He is merciful. He is tender. He is a loving Lord, a condescending Christ. That is what Nephi is going to show us from the very beginning. And you can find God's tender mercies in page after page. I remember years ago on a New Year's Eve, I think I was reading or something and my wife was doing something else. And out of the blue, she just said, wow, I just read, there was this general authority to do this thing called the Book of Mormon Marathon. I'm like, oh, kind of half paying attention. Uh, what was that? And she said, well, he read the Book of Mormon once a month for a year. He read the Book of Mormon 12 times in one year picked a different topic each time. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then my wife said, and I bet she knew exactly what she was doing. She's like, man, you could never do something like that. And I was like, how dare you? I mean, you just threw down the gauntlet. I know exactly what I'm going to do next year, starting tomorrow. And sure enough, I did. She must have felt I was, I was slipping in my scriptural knowledge or something, because she, she knew she was setting me up for that. But every month, I would buy another cheap copy of you know missionary edition of the Book of Mormon, label something on the inside to say what this, what the purpose of that month of study would be. This is going to be my, my faith edition of the Book of Mormon, or this is my repentance edition of the Book of Mormon. One that stands out to me from that year was my tender mercies edition of the Book of Mormon. To go story by story with an eye just to that, to see if Nephi was right in showing unto us that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all. He was right. And there is no more beautiful thread that keeps being woven throughout the text than the mercies of the Lord. If that's what we're supposed to be looking for from the beginning, 1 Nephi 1, it seems so fitting that Moroni would pick that up at the end in Moroni 10. Ponder that. By this time in the last 529 pages you've been studying this record, have you seen the hand of God in their lives? And are you seeing it in your own? Do you recognize that he is a merciful Messiah? Ponder that in your heart. Ask the Lord if that's the kind of God he is. Come to know him through these pages. You see, from the very beginning, the book itself is the means. But coming to know God for who he is, that's the ends. Nephi understood that perfectly. Remember how he ends his writings in 2 Nephi 33? Where he says, hey, if you don't believe in this record, that's fine by me. Just believe in Jesus. And then tongue in cheek, he says, of course, if you do believe in Jesus, you will believe in this record since they are his words. But I'm just saying, I'm not mistaking means and ends. I know what this book is for. And it's not to talk about itself. I wish I would have understood that as a missionary. I talked about the Book of Mormon all the time because I'm so amazed by this incredible book. And I just wanted people to know that it was true and that this would be a domino to help them see that God is still at work and that Joseph Smith was a true prophet and the church has been restored and on and on and on. But I wish I would have understood better then what I understand now, that the Book of Mormon is not so self-absorbed as to talk about itself much at all. It is absorbed in Jesus. Its focus is on him. Think about his mercy. Ponder that. And then ask if that's really the way he is. So you'll have the courage to come unto him. I think sometimes it's our misunderstanding or misperception of God that keeps us at arm's length. And if we would only come to know him for who he is, 
then we would come running, which is exactly what Moroni invites us to do at the end. Remember, he said at the beginning of this chapter, I just want to give you a few words of exhortation. And his ultimate exhortation is how he ends the book, come unto Christ. But what would keep us from heeding that exhortation? It's not being invited in advance to come to know the person that you are being drawn to. Do you know what he's like? He's love personified. He is charity embodied. Think about who he is and what he's done. And how could you not come? You remember Alma the Younger's misperception of God, that he was so afraid of being condemned by him. He wanted the mountains to come and hide him before God's face. Or as he said, even in stronger language later, I wanted to cease to exist if I could only be banished both body and spirit. And yet one column later in Alma 36, when he sees in vision the throne of God, it says, and my soul did long to be there. What changed in the course of one column? He came to know Jesus as a merciful Messiah. For he came not to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. If I would have understood this better as a missionary, I would have talked less about the Book of Mormon and would have allowed the Book of Mormon to do a lot more talking about its central message, which is Jesus Christ. You see, this is what it boils down to. If you remember nothing else from this discussion of Moroni's promise, please remember this from verse 3. It's not about what the Book of Mormon is. It's about what the Book of Mormon does. The question is less, is the book true? And more the question, does the book work? Does the Book of Mormon persuade us, convince us that Jesus is the Christ? Does it let me know how merciful he will be, not just with ancient scriptural figures, but with me up to the moment that I receive these things, that he wants me to come? This is a living voice from the dust speaking to living, breathing readers, you and me, and it is inviting, exhorting us to come. And the way it does that best is by reassuring us of who we're coming to. I do testify. I know it for myself that the Lord is merciful, not just with past prophets or people, but with me. I felt it in my own life. And it's the Book of Mormon that has introduced me to him. I can come because Alma the Younger came. I can come. I can bury my swords because the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did. I can give away all my sins to know God because King Lamoni's father did. I can have a mighty change of heart because King Benjamin's people did. I can come and worship at the feet of Jesus along with every child in 3 Nephi 17. I have come to know Jesus, and the Book of Mormon has introduced me to him. I will forever treasure this book because it works, because it did that for me. Those of you who served missions, do you remember how much the people you taught loved you? And it wasn't because of you. It wasn't because of who you are. It's because of what you did for them. You brought them to Christ, and they will forever love you for it. 
use the Book of Mormon in the same way. The Book of Mormon is not the end in and of itself. Quit talking about it then. Just talk about Jesus, but use the Book of Mormon to do so. And by the time they have come to know him, they will love whatever brought them there. That's why they'll love you, missionaries. And that's why they'll love the Book of Mormon. That is its purpose. Ponder that in your hearts. Now, once you have that firmly in mind, verse 4 and verse 5 become powerful promises. When ye shall receive these things, now we're talking the Book of Mormon, the place where all of these tender mercies are couched, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ. That's textbook prayer right there. That's how Jesus taught them to pray in 3 Nephi. That's, in fact, remember the language that Mormon used last time. To pray in the name of his holy child, the condescending Christ. To know that he will come down to our level to answer our prayers. To have real faith in him, which he will reiterate in a moment. But to ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. Now, when I was young, I got, always get tripped up over that not true. Thinking, wait a minute. Am I supposed to be asking him if it's not true instead of asking him if it's true? Are we trying to establish positive evidence or eliminate negative evidence? How is this supposed to work? Now, I don't think that Moroni is trying to give us an exact word track to follow. I'm supposed to, oh, I didn't say not. No wonder the answer didn't come. I'm supposed to say not. No, I think what he's getting at is if you've already gotten through verse 3, then you've probably come to a preliminary conclusion by the middle of verse 4. And in fact, if the experience of millions of Latter-day Saints is any indication, if you have studied the Book of Mormon from Nephi all the way to this point, if you've pondered your own experience through the lens of the Lord's dealings with these people, then by now you have probably come to the conclusion that it is true, that Jesus is the Christ, a whole second hemisphere witness of him to confirm the witness of the Bible, to teach me of his tender mercies. Honestly, by now, if it were completely up to me, I would lean in the direction of belief. I love the book. I love its message. I love what it's done to me over the last 530 pages. You see, I think what the Lord is getting at in verse 3 is do your homework and come up with an answer so that you can present that answer to the Lord in verse 4 and ask, hey, I, I'm, I'm not wrong here, right? I, the, the answer I've come up with is true. Remember section 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants when Oliver Cowdery is told, you took no thought save what was to ask me. In other words, you jumped to verse 4 and never did your homework in verse 3. You've got to study this out. You've got to come up with a preliminary solution and then present it to me for ratification, for confirmation, or pull you back and say, no, 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 that's not the path to go. This is like the brother of Jared. What do you want to do to get light into your vessels? I can help. But I want you to do your homework. Come up with your idea. In fact, after all, I'm trying to help you grow up in God, not just disseminate answers to you. I want you to learn to trust yourself. So again, after all these months of study of the Book of Mormon, what's your conclusion? Are you leaning in the direction of belief? To the point that you'd say, yeah, I believe this book. I think that it is true. Am I wrong here? Every indication says this book teaches about Jesus. It teaches truth and goodness. And every good thing comes of God. 
I've come to a conclusion. Now I am simply seeking a confirmation. I remember as a missionary in the MTC, actually even before, I, once I received my mission call to Puerto Rico, I knew I'd be speaking Spanish. And thankfully, I'd had four years of Spanish in high school. I think the Lord knew that I would need a long head start to get up to speed. Others, sure, you can learn it in two months. Halverson, you're going to need four full years. And by the time I got my mission call, I bought myself a Libro de Mormon, a Spanish copy, and I began to read. And I set the goal for myself. I want to finish the Book of Mormon in Spanish before I set foot into the mission field. I had read the Book of Mormon several times already in English, but I wanted to be able to set foot in San Juan and look my first Puerto Rican in the eye and say, Yo sé que este libro es verdadero en su idioma, no solamente en el mío. In other words, I want, I want to be able to testify I know this book is true in your language and not just in mine. There's something to be said for paying the price of study before you seek that confirming spirit that it's true. We did that with each of our five children. Starting about age six, I would sit down and start reading them with them verse by verse the Book of Mormon, I, with the goal to have finished a one-on-one -on -one read of the Book of Mormon together before they were eight and would decide whether or not they wanted to be baptized. I wanted them to know the foundation scripture, this keystone text. At the beginning of our experience, I did most of the reading. They would read a, a word here and there as I would point to them. They would grow into reading the short verses and then into the medium verses. And by the end, we would often just alternate back and forth. Each of our five children read the Book of Mormon before they decided to be baptized. There was a, a homework period before the confirmation came. And I'm grateful that they decided to be baptized because of experiences that they had had in the Book of Mormon. I wanted to have that experience for myself in Spanish. And so I began to read. I didn't understand everything. Got to the Isaiah chapters and good luck. I didn't even understand those in English, let alone in Spanish. But I just kept plugging through. And by the time I got to the MTC, I can't remember exactly where I was, but I had two months and thought, okay, if I space it out, yes, I can finish the Book of Mormon before I leave the MTC. Now, the thing about our district, we were going to be going all over the world, and it was a combination of advanced Spanish and intermediate Spanish. The advanced class was all the nativos, and one amazing gringo from Idaho that somehow knew Spanish better than even the natives did. And then the rest of us, mostly gringos, that had had a lot of Spanish in high school, and so we're in this intermediate group. And because Spanish was largely already there, we could head out to the mission field as soon as we got our travel plans. And all my, comp my companions and fellow district members were getting their plans before I was. I was kind of devastated. As it turned out, I was the last one to get travel plans. And ironically, the first one to actually leave the MTC. My teacher came and pulled me aside and said, well, we heard from your mission president. You don't need a visa or passport to go to Puerto Rico. Your Spanish is good enough. They could use you now, so you're leaving next week. And my first thought was, yes, I'm out of here. I get to go do the real work. But my second thought was, no, I needed five more weeks to finish the Book of Mormon. And I only have one week. There's no way I can finish. And then my third thought was, well, get up earlier and read faster. You can still do this. <sighs> okay. And I did. I would wake up so early in the morning, and you're not supposed to leave your companions, but I, so I wouldn't leave the room, but I would open the door to the hallway so that the light from the hallway would shine into the room, and I'd just sit there with, next to the door frame on the floor reading my Libro de Mormon. As I waited in line for breakfast and lunch and dinner, I always had the Libro de Mormon in my hand. It's like you had to surgically remove it by the time I was done. But done, I was. 
about a day before I finished. And it was an incredible experience. Now, what was interesting looking back on it was that I was simultaneously doing verse 3 kind of homework, pondering, study, and verse 4 kind of praying and pleading all at the same time. You see, like I said, I had studied the Book of Mormon before. I felt like I had a strong testimony of the restored gospel. It's what propelled me into the mission field. But I realized at a large group meeting, in fact, when somebody was talking about Moroni's promise, that I had never put it to the test. I felt like I had a testimony of the Book of Mormon, but I didn't have a testimony about the Book of Mormon through prayer. My weak point in testimony was actually prayer more than anything else, because I never felt like I'd really gotten an answer when I asked God that kind of a question. So that night I set out to begin asking, and the answer didn't come. That night, or the next night, or the night after that. And the more days passed with me praying to ask Heavenly Father if the Book of Mormon was true, without getting an answer, the more nervous that I became. I was still studying it like crazy, still having good experiences with it. But when I actually just closed the book and prayed and said, Heavenly Father, is this true? It was like the heavens were closed. And I started to worry until something happened with my prayer. Now, notice the next phrase in chapter 10, verse 4. We're going to ask if these things are not true. We've done our homework. We've come to a conclusion. We're going to ask if we're right. And if, so here's the big if. If ye shall ask with a sincere heart, that's the first requirement, a sincere heart. No falsehood, no pretense, just raw and real and vulnerable. Well, I was finally reduced to that point. And just to plead with Heavenly Father on my knees until finally one night, this incredible breakthrough where it almost felt like the Lord took control of the prayer. I remember saying to him in in prayer that night, Heavenly Father, I need to know if the Book of Mormon is true. And I need to know through prayer. In total honesty, I just remember saying to him, I feel like you have told me in the past. I've had powerful experiences studying it since I was young. I've had powerful experiences at youth conference and at seminary and going to the temple and just living the life of a member of the church, born of goodly parents who taught me, raised me on those words. I think you've told me in so many different ways that it's true, but you've never told me when I've asked. You've never told me in this way. And Heavenly Father, when I go to Puerto Rico, I can't tell them to study the Book of Mormon and then go to youth conference or study the Book of Mormon and then go to EFY or study the Book of Mormon and then go to Trek or whatever it might be. It's just you and them and the book. And they need to be able to know from prayer. So I need to be able to know from prayer that this book comes from thee. Please, Father, help me know this way what you've already told me and so many others. You see, I was honoring the experiences that I'd already had. I was honoring the conclusions I had reached and the spiritual confirmations I had experienced. But I wanted this to occur. I needed this to occur, as Moroni promised. And I was flooded with such a sweet and pure spirit of confirmation. This was not some simple experience of confirmation bias. 
as skeptics would suggest. This was not me willing my testimony into existence, or I've already willed it before. This wasn't me mustering up some kind of an experience. It wasn't self-induced, or I'd, I would have induced it earlier. It was when I finally hit rock bottom, real, raw sincerity, with nothing to offer but an honest and open heart and an honesty with the experiences that I'd already had in the past that had pointed me in the direction of truth. The next phrase, by the way, is just as important. Not only sincere heart, but with real intent. Now, intent, that same word as intention, or I intend to do something about this. And sometimes that is what is lacking. It seems like you meet people all the time. Oh, no, I don't believe in the Book of Mormon. Oh, I read it and I prayed about it. Nothing, nothing. Which makes me just want to understand better what was your experiment like? Because it has been verifiable and reproducible across different times and places for the last 200 years almost. What was your experience and experiment like? Was it wisdom in God that you read them? What kind of conclusions did you reach as you really studied did you have a completely open mind to the point that you were independent of other people and could just simply have a sincere heart? And perhaps most importantly, what was your intention based on the answer you received? Were you planning on doing anything with the answer that came? When somebody says, oh, I've prayed about it, didn't get anything. To just, to, to, to call it in some ways and say, okay, I understand, I, I accept that. But can I ask a, a hypothetical? If you had received a witness that it was true, what would you have done? Would you have joined the church? Would you have been baptized? Would you have handed your life over to God in, in full discipleship if you'd received an answer to your prayer? And for those who say, well, no, of course not, then you do have to wonder, well, did you come with real intent? I remember when my wife and I were starting to get serious dating in college, and I remember I'd been praying about it. I didn't want to waste time. I was 23 at the time, uh, soon to be 24, and didn't want to waste time in terms of spending a, a long relationship that wasn't going to go anywhere. At a certain point, you're not dating just to have fun anymore. You're dating to find a spouse, right? Uh, and I remember I've been praying about this and feeling better and better about pursuing this relationship. I never used any kind of revelation to leverage that to her. I, I don't believe in two revelations for the price of one. I made sure that she knew, hey, God could tell me yes and tell you no, and that's not a doctrinal dilemma. It's a heartbreak, but, it's, but doctrinally, theologically, that's not confusing to me. You could be the perfect type of person for me, and me not for you, and so it goes. But I did suggest to her one night after the, at the end of a date, what do you think about praying about our relationship? What do you think about starting to explore what the Lord thinks about this? And her response was hilarious. Uh, she said, oh, I don't want to pray about it. And I was like, what? Why, why wouldn't you want to pray about it? And she said, well, because the answer is probably going to be no. And once I know that it's wrong, then I'm going to have to break up with you. And, and I don't want to. You're, you're fun. I'm having a good time. And I remember on the one hand thinking, oh, she kind of likes me. This is a good sign. She doesn't want to break up. Oh, she doesn't think it's going to work out. She thinks God is against this from the start. That's a bummer. Uh, but she hasn't actually asked, so she doesn't know that to be sure. And until she gets a clear no, I'm going to stick with my yes. And we'll keep dating. But yet you catch this, the, the spirit of intention on her part. If I know something from God, then I have to act on it. 
if he tells me no, then I intend to break up with you. Just like me was, well, maybe he'll tell you yes. And then I hope the same intention is there that you'll act on it and you'll marry me. And thankfully she did. But do you understand this idea of intention? When I was a missionary, I was a zone leader in Caguas, Puerto Rico. And there was a, 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 a t- country town up in the mountainside and it's called Calle. And there was a man up there that the missionaries met. His name was Victor Felix, and he was a Baptist minister. Had been for over two decades. And I think it was just kindness on his part to let the missionaries come in. And Well, I mean, I know the Bible better than they do, and I can set them straight. But they're good boys, and they're trying to do good things. So I can at least pull them in from, from the rain or whatever. Well, they presented the Book of Mormon to him, and he accepted it with an open enough heart and mind to at least begin to read And it changed him. But it came to a point where Victor had to decide about intention. If this book is true, what's that going to mean to me as a Baptist minister? If this book is true and the church is true, then I'm going to have to be baptized in it. And that will mean me losing my job and my congregation, which is all my social support. It's my health insurance, and he needed health insurance because of some major sicknesses that he was dealing with. Everything was stacked against him, and yet I still remember his experiences. I wasn't one of his set of missionaries, Elder Valgardson and Elder Lesuir, if I remember correctly. But as the zone leader, I got to be part of the baptismal interviews and see his, his initial conversion. He told me the story that they went out to the beach, and he just waded into the surf. And he said to Heavenly Father, You know, Father, that I have spent my life trying to serve Thee. And you know what it would mean to me if this book is true. I'll lose everything. But then again, if it's true, I would gain everything. And I'm willing to ask the question. I'm willing to make that sacrifice. I just want to know what is from Thee. I will follow you as I always have. I just need to know if it's true. He said he was flooded with a confirming spirit that the Book of Mormon was God's word. And with real intent, Victor Felix was baptized. He lost his job. He lost his congregation. He lost and gained everything. He had nothing else to do. And so he'd just go on splits with the missionaries like every single day particularly bringing the gospel to his old friends who always happened to be old members of his congregation. Amazing the influence that Victor Felix has had in that part of the vineyard. In fact, when my parents came to pick me up at the end of my mission, we stayed with Victor one night. And what a powerful experience it was for my parents to meet this pioneer, this convert who had approached the Lord with real intent and acted upon it. The missionaries have lived with Brother Felix for the last 20 years or so. He has been a stalwart pillar of the church there. He and I shared some thoughts with each other just yesterday via direct message. His example has always been a blessing to me. He's what I picture in my mind when I hear real intent. Now beyond that, at the end of verse 4, also having faith in Christ to trust him. That's how we can be willing to put our life in his hands, to have real faith in him. 
trusting his will that he knows better than we do. And if we have that trust, if we have that sincerity, if we have that real intent, then he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And then to expand that promise, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. This is what we can refer to as divine epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we say we know? And according to this verse, we can know the truth of all things by the power of the Holy Ghost. In fact, when it comes to knowing spiritual things, there's no other way around it. It has to be by the power of the Holy Ghost. For the last three to four hundred years, much of religious history has been spent taking eggs out of faith's basket and moving them into reason's basket. Feeling like, well, if science and reason and rationalism are, are the ones that get all the street cred, then we need to establish the reasonableness, the rationality of religious belief. And that was naive. There are certain things about religion that are non-provable and, good news, non-disprovable. They are taken on faith. And it's faith, rather than perfect knowledge, that seems to be the Lord's intent for us to learn to live by trusting in Him, establishing a relationship. I've sometimes wondered honestly if our failures in relationships in these last days have come as a result of our loss of faith, meaning trust in another person. We have to have evidence and proof for everything. And that's not faith, and it's not humanity for that matter. There's an incredible phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. Paul was a genius, intellectually. And he's writing to other intellects in Corinth. Corinth is near Athens. Athens synonymous with philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And I'm amazed at what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, Brethren, I, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. It's not a rational epistemology. Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher, talked about this in his critique of pure reason. That there are certain areas, epistemologically speaking, where pure reason, where sheer rationality is insufficient. That's why the sciences can never fully take the place of the humanities. Because we're human. It's like Goethe said, that, that reality divided by reason still leaves a remainder. And what are we going to do with that remainder? Well, that was the emphasis for Paul. He says in the next verse, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love that, that determination. Most of us don't have to determine to know nothing. Our ignorance comes pretty naturally. But for a genius like Paul, it's like I'm making a conscious decision to shelf my rationality. Because if, if I'm going to come to you and eloquently, uh, persu if, if I'm going to use rhetoric to try to convince you that it's true, then, you're, then there's no faith. And there's just kind of mental acquiescence to, to some greater burden of proof. The way he puts it, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. That's philosophy, man's wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And here's why. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If it's going to be faith, real faith, it's not going to be based in the wisdom of man at all. It has to be based in the power of God. And so do you see that same idea of faith and power and spirit? 
in the verses that we've been studying in Moroni 10. It's by the power of the Holy Ghost that you will know the truth of all things. That's divine epistemology. One of my favorite examples of that comes from the great Clayton Christensen, former Harvard business professor, recently passed away, incredible disciple of Jesus Christ, one of the great member missionaries of our dispensation, according to President Ballard, who himself is a pretty incredible member missionary. Uh, Brother Christensen is one who wrote the book, The Power of Everyday Missionaries, and he lived it. He's not, and that's, and at his day job, he keeps getting voted the greatest business mind on planet Earth. Uh, disruptive innovation is his brainchild, and it's it's made waves in all kinds of things, from business to education to healthcare. Talk about a rationalist. Uh, Brother Christensen is incredible when it comes to the words of men's wisdom, but he knows that's not where he places his faith. He has come to know spiritual things through spiritual means, by the power of the Holy Ghost. And I wanted to share something with you from a talk he gave way back in 2004 called Decisions for Which I've Been Grateful. This talk is not as well known as it needs to be. He talks about five decisions that have changed his life, but it's the second one that I want to t share with you based on what we've been reading from Moroni's Promise. Brother Christensen was talking about his own time as a, a, as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University in England. Yeah, he's a smart guy. He, by then he was a returned missionary. He said he'd read the Book of Mormon like six or seven times to, by then, but always at somebody else's request, always some project or you know, a, a young men's goal or an expectation from his mission president. And, and loved the gospel, felt like the church did great good in people's lives, but still didn't re really feel like he'd had a testimony that the Book of Mormon was the Word of God. And again, he worried that it was... Am I missing that testimony because I've just been checking boxes and studying it because other people want me to, instead of just for me knowing these, these things from God? So this is what he decided as a busy PhD student, basically, at Oxford University. He said, I decided that I would commit every evening from 11 to 12 o'clock to reading the Book of Mormon to find out if it was true. I wondered if I dared spend that much time because I was in a very demanding academic program studying applied econometrics and I was going to try to finish the program in two years whereas most of the people in the program finished it in three. And I just didn't know if I could afford allocating an hour a day to this effort. But nonetheless I did. And I began at 11 p.m. by kneeling in prayer by the chair by that heater and I prayed out loud. I told God how desperate I was to find out if this was a true book. Can you sense him doing almost everything that Moroni lists? Paying the price, doing his homework like we see in verse 3? Coming to the Lord with true sincerity and with real intent? Because listen to what he said next. I told God that if he would reveal to me that it was true, that I then intended, so here's real intent, to dedicate my life to building his kingdom. And I told him if it wasn't true, that I needed to know that for certain too, because then I would dedicate my life to finding out what was true. Either way, he had a sincere heart. Either way, he had real intent. Either way, he had faith in Christ, knowing that truth would come from him somehow, and that he was willing to follow it at all costs. He then said, I would sit in the chair, and I read the first page of the Book of Mormon. And when I got down to the bottom of the page, I stopped and thought about what I had read on that page. And I asked myself, could this have been written by a charlatan who was trying to deceive people? Or was this really written by a prophet of God? And what did it mean for me in my life? 
See, he's trying to come, whatever rationalism he can muster, right? Combine the head with the heart, asking himself those kinds of questions, trying to come to a logical con- uh, conclusion, but also seeking spiritual confirmation of whatever conclusions he reached. Then he said he would put the book down and kneel in prayer and verbally ask God again, please tell me if this is a true book. Then I would sit in the chair and pick up the book and turn the page and read another page. Pause at the bottom and do the same thing. I did this for an hour every night, night after night, in that cold, damp room at the Queen's College, Oxford. How serious are we at finding truth? Are we willing to make these kinds of sacrifices? Now, Brother Christensen said that by the time he got to the chapters at the end of 2 Nephi, one evening when I said my prayer and sat in my chair and opened the book, all of a sudden there came into that room a beautiful, warm, loving spirit that just surrounded me and permeated my soul and enveloped me in a feeling of love that I just had not imagined I could feel. This was not self-induced spiritual experience because it went far beyond anything he'd experienced before, anything he imagined possible. Those who say people are simply inventing spiritual feelings haven't really experienced the Holy Ghost. Because when you feel that, you know it's something beyond you. It is transcendent. It transcends normal experience. It did for Brother Christensen. He said, I began to cry, and I didn't want to stop crying. Because as I looked through my tears at the words in the Book of Mormon, I could see truth in those words that I never imagined I could comprehend before. I could see the glories of eternity. And I could see what God had in store for me as one of his sons. See what he's, what's happening to him? A real relationship with deity. Not just some kind of historical knowledge of words on the page. I didn't want to stop crying. That spirit stayed with me the whole hour. And then every evening as I prayed and sat with the Book of Mormon by the fireplace in my room, that same spirit returned and it changed my heart and my life forever. That's one of the parts that strikes me most about this. He didn't stop his experiences once he'd had the spiritual confirmation he sought. That was really the beginning of real study. It's like, well, now that I know it's true, this is, the study is going to change me from this moment on. This was consecrated time now. Not just to find an answer, but to allow that answer to provide for him the answers to the questions that were weighing upon his soul. He said, I look back at the conflict that I experienced, wondering whether I could afford to spend an hour every day apart from the study of applied econometrics to find that the Book of Mormon was true. And you know, I use applied econometrics maybe once a year, but I use my knowledge that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God many times every day of my life. In all the education that I have pursued, that is the single most useful piece of knowledge that I ever gained. I love to return to Oxford, he said. Most of the people there are either students or they're tourists who have come to look at a beautiful university. But I love to return there because it's a sacred place. And I can look at the windows of that room where I lived and think that that's the place that I learned that Jesus is the Christ, that he is my living redeemer, and that Joseph Smith was the prophet of the restoration for the true church. Such a powerful experience for him. One that he has shared with countless Harvard students and leaders of business around the world. He's so unapologetic, so not shy about sharing the truths that he has come to know. And he came to know it by the power of the Holy Ghost 
That's the way we know the truth of the things that matter most in life. Now Moroni goes on about epistemology and says, Whatsoever thing is good is just and true. Wherefore, nothing that is good denieth the Christ, but acknowledgeth that he is. Again, he's not confusing means and ends here. This is less about the Book of Mormon and more about its message of Jesus. The book acknowledges that he is the Christ. It convinces us of that truth. And then verse 7, you may know that he is. It's about him, not about it. That he is, same way, by the power of the Holy Ghost. Wherefore, I would exhort you, another one of his exhortations, that ye deny not the power of God, for he worketh by power, according to the faith of the children of men, the same today and tomorrow and forever. Now he's about to pivot here. This first exhortation is pondering the mercies of God and, and asking God if, it's met, if the Book of Mormon's message about Christ is true. He lets us know that we'll know those truths by the power of the Holy Ghost because that's the way God works and always has. Because he's trying to build us into people like him. He's trying to help us grow up in God. And that requires faith. I've often told people that heaven has a very heavy door. And faith is the muscle we use to push it open. And so we have to learn to develop faith in this life. That faith comes through God's power. That's how he works. It's always, that's how he's always done it. In fact, remember when Jesus and the Father appeared to Joseph Smith in the first vision. And the Lord tells him that people are drawing near to him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. But you remember this phrase? They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. See, it's not just outward forms of godliness. It's not just even righteousness that he's after. It's divine power. The power that can only come from God. Remember Nephi's thesis statement, that as we choose God through our faith then he gives us power. He makes us mighty unto the power of deliverance. That's the manifestation of his tender mercies. And so we have to trust in that power that can come from God. So here's the pivot then. Because verse 8, for about the next 20 verses or so, he'll then start talking about the gifts of God, the gifts of the Spirit. Those all work by power as well. And so exercise your faith in God's power so that those spiritual gifts can be at work in you. One of those gifts he's already walked us through, the gift of coming to know the truthfulness of things through the confirming witness of the Holy Ghost. Well, here's more about those gifts of God. Verse 8, Again, I exhort you, my brethren, that ye deny not the gifts of God. They are many. They come from the same God. There are different ways that these gifts are administered, but it is the same God who worketh all in all. And they are given by the manifestations of the Spirit of God unto men to profit them. Now, this is so important that, these, that similar truths are going to be taught by, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, by the Lord himself in Doctrine and Covenants section 46. It's interesting that in both New Testament and Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants, you name the dispensation. We saw it before, right? This is the way the Lord works, same today and tomorrow and forever. He works by power. He works through spiritual gifts. He's trying to help us develop the muscles of faith. And so don't deny that God gives these gifts to us. Mormon talked about this. Moroni talked about this. This is a big concern for Moroni. He's lived in an age where faith has collapsed along with the civilization that faith could have upheld. How does he end his first attempt at closing the Book of Mormon? I've told you this before. He tries to end the book three times. At the end of Mormon, in Ether, and now at the end of Moroni. And each of these three times, he's trying to help us believe 
in the gifts of God. He's trying to help exercise faith. And so how does he end Mormon's book? In chapter 8 and 9, specifically in 9, he talks to those who don't believe in Jesus. You need to exercise faith in his power. Then how does he try to end Ether? In Ether 12, he gives us his final words there, and it's all about faith as he walks us through the Hall of Fame. We need to exercise that saving faith that God still works in us as he's worked in people past. And now this third and final attempt to conclude the Book of Mormon, same message. You've got to believe. God works by power. He wants to show his hand in your life. Come unto him. Trust him. Come to know him. Recognize the gifts he is willing to offer if you'll simply have the faith to accept them. His list is a relatively short one. There's additional gifts mentioned in the Corinthians and Doctrine and Covenants version and so many gifts that aren't mentioned in any of the three places. But notice some that he lists. Verse 9 and 10, for example, teaching the word of wisdom in 9 or teaching the word of knowledge in 10. Either way, it comes by the same Spirit, the Spirit of God. But have you recognized those different gifts in people? Some have the gift to learn and others have the gift to teach. Some have gifts of knowledge and others gifts of wisdom. It's like book smarts versus street smarts. Some have such a great way of disseminating truth to the point that it just, it makes perfect sense. And you can, you can remember and you learn. Things just click for you. And there's others have that have such an ability to teach wisdom where it's like, it just like the way life works. And, and when the rubber hits the road, this is the kind of life I, I should be living in. These are the things I should be doing. In verse 11, he mentions the gift of great faith or the gifts of healing. And notice it's plural there, gifts of healing. There are so many ways that Jesus healed in the New Testament and not just the physical kind that we could be referring to. There are those who heal spiritually, those who heal medically, those who heal emotionally or mentally. And those are all gifts that come from the Spirit of God. They're meant to profit us. That's what he said at the end of verse 8. In 12, mighty miracles. In 13, the gift of prophecy. In 14, the gift to behold angels and ministering spirits. Remember what that required back in Moroni 7? Faith, a firm mind, every form of godliness. Those are gifts too. Verse 15 and 16 go together beautifully. Often gifts seem to go hand in hand with companion gifts. And if you have one and then someone else has the other and you find each other, miracles will take place. In 15, it's the gift of tongues. And in 16, it's the gift of interpretation of tongues. Just how do we communicate with one another in a way that we can truly understand each other across the divide of human language or human experience? In verse 17, all these gifts, and so many others not listed here, come by the Spirit of Christ. They come unto every man, severally, according as he will, God's will, gifts to all, that's why we need one another, as section 46 clarifies. Because I have some gifts, but I don't have them all. And you have gifts that I lack, but that I need, which means I need you. We need one another because we need each other's spiritual gifts. Just like the principle of scattered revelation forces us to come together in counsel to come to the Lord's will. Well, this, the, the principle of scattered gifts forces us all to find in each other fellow members of the body of Christ, some providing light and others sound and others taste and others touch, head and feet and hand and ear and eye, all necessary 
in the body of Christ. Verse 18, I would exhort you. So again, another exhortation. My beloved brethren, that you remember that every good gift cometh of Christ. He is still the focal point here. The Book of Mormon is meant to bring us to Christ. The spiritual gifts are meant to point us to him because his fingerprints are all over them. If it's good, then it's Jesus. If it's good, then it's just and true. If it's good, it brings us to him and makes us more like him. Remember, that's Father's explanation. Mormon, when he talks about the way to judge is so plain, daylight from dark night, it's meant to help you come unto Christ. And so does it point to him? Does it persuade you to come unto him? Does it acknowledge that he is and make you want to love and serve him more? Then it comes from him. It's that tuning fork, that homing beacon. Respond to it. Verse 19, another exhortation. I would exhort you, my beloved brethren, that ye remember that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, you've just spent 500 pages studying his, the way he responds to people in the past. He'll do the same thing for you in the present. All these gifts of which I have spoken, which are spiritual, never will be done away, except in one circumstance. They'll never be done away, even as long as the world shall stand, except in this scenario. Only according to the unbelief of the children of men. Moroni's talked about that earlier. Mormon talked about that earlier. If there are no spiritual gifts, it's because there's no spiritual strength. And strength comes by faith. That faith becomes his focus then in verse 20. Wherefore, there must be faith. Because if there's no faith, there's no spiritual gifts. And if there's no faith, in fact, then there's no hope or charity. I learned that from my father, Mormon, right? If there must be faith, there must also be hope as a result. And if there must be hope, there must also be charity as a result. And 21, except ye have charity, this crowning gift, that's the way Paul describes it in his description of spiritual gifts, right? It's 1 Corinthians 12 that he talks about gifts. And then 13 is where he shows the more excellent way, which is charity. Except you have charity, you can in no wise be saved in the kingdom of God. Because it's charity that defines that kingdom. God rules that kingdom and God is love. You'll never get there without charity. Nor will you get there without faith or without hope. And then 22 says an interesting thing that we need to keep in proper context. 22, he says, If ye have no hope, ye must needs be in despair, and despair cometh because of iniquity. Now, last time when we were studying Mormon's words about faith, hope, and charity, we recognized that there are two types of hope. Ultimate hope, which was what Mormon was talking about. Hope in through the atonement of Christ to be raised unto life eternal. And then there's proximate hope, the day-to-day -day kinds of things that we're hoping for. Well, if hope and despair are opposites, then just like there's ultimate hope and proximate hope, there is ultimate despair and proximate despair. And just like Mormon was talking about ultimate hope, in verse 22, Moroni is talking about ultimate despair. If you have no hope for salvation, then you have despair. And the only reason you would have despair, he says in this verse, is because of iniquity, unrepented sin is the only thing that can block you from the grace of Christ that will bring you home. Remember, if you have sufficient faith in his sufficient grace, then of course you'll have sufficient hope that he'll bring you to heaven. What would stop you from having hope in him? Your own sins, unrepented of. That kind of ultimate despair cometh because of iniquity. Please do not confuse this with 
proximate despair, especially in the form of clinical depression. That is simply something in the mind that is no different than physical maladies in the, in the body. That kind of proximate despair is not your fault. It didn't come because of iniquity. Those who think it is are simply adding fuel to the fire, causing more depression upon the depression they already have. Don't blame yourself. We have to get over that stigma of mental illness and recognize that it's a common lot for so many of God's children at times of our lives and that you didn't bring it upon yourself. You didn't cause this. It's not your fault. You're not despairing because of iniquity. This is ultimate despair in the absence of ultimate hope. Now Christ comes to fortify our faith and to reward it. In verse 23, he truly said unto our fathers, if you have faith, have you get the sense how focused he is on this? He was focused on it in Mormon 8 and 9. He was focused on it in Ether 12. He's focused on it in Moroni 10. You've got to have your faith in Christ. He is the Lord of tender mercies. Trust him. Put your life in his hands. He will not let you slip through his fingers. If you have faith in him, then you can do anything that is expedient in him. This goes back to what we saw in verse 3. Is it wisdom in God that they should receive them? Is it expedient in him? Faith is not rubbing a lamp and having the genie come out. Faith is having a close enough relationship with Christ that you trust his will in all things, that you can find out through discernment what is expedient in him, and that you're okay to accept the chips wherever they fall. I trust him. I know he knows what's best for me what's expedient. Now, verse 24, now I speak unto all the ends of the earth. He's looking beyond his immediate Lamanite audience to every eventual reader of the Book of Mormon, all the ends of the earth. If the day cometh that the power and gifts of God shall be done away among you, it shall be because of unbelief. He has said that over and over. Power, gifts, and faith all come together. And he warns us in 25, Woe be unto the children of men, if this be the case. For there shall be none that doeth good among you, no, not one. For if there be one among you that doeth good, he shall work by the power and gifts of God. It's the only way real good will ever come of things. If it's good, it comes from the Lord. He is the author and source of all goodness. And even though people may not recognize the source of their strength, he's where it's coming from. So look to him. Trust in him. Act as he would act. Lay a hold upon every good gift and every good thing comes of Christ. So many parallels between Mormon's discourse in 7 and Moroni's discourse in 10. He learned from his father well. Hopefully we do too. Because in 26, the warning comes, Woe unto them who shall do these things away and die. To do away with the gifts of God. To do away with his power. To do away with your faith. Because if, if you eliminate those things and then die, then you die in your sins. That's the ultimate despair that comes from unrepented iniquity. They cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. Because that kingdom is defined by its faith, hope, and charity. You would not be comfortable there. You wouldn't feel that you fit in. I speak it according to the words of Christ, he says. I lie not. And then to confirm that, 
to give you his own direct witness. Again, I love how he starts. This is just between you and God and the book. Study it, ponder its message, pray about its truth, come to know that it works, and you'll know that it is true. That came as such a relief to me when I finally figured that out as a missionary. I don't have to prove anything. I can simply leave people with the book and leave them with God. And God will work things out through the power of the Holy Ghost. But here Moroni is getting much more direct. As he stares into the camera at all the ends of the earth and says in 27, I exhort you. That word keeps coming up in this chapter to remember these things. For the time speedily cometh that ye shall know that I lie not. For ye shall see me at the bar of God. And the Lord God will say unto you, Did I not declare my words unto you? Again, that possessive pronoun is so beautiful. It's not These weren't Moroni's words. He wasn't just talking because he wanted to talk. These were my words, whether by the voice of my servants or my own voice, it is the same. And didn't I declare my words unto you, which were written by this man, like as one crying from the dead, yea, even as one speaking out of the dust. I declare these things unto the fulfilling of the prophecies. God always has his prophets back. And behold, they shall proceed forth out of the mouth of the everlasting God, and his word shall hiss forth from generation to generation. Such beautiful phrases. Crying from the dead, speaking from the dust, hissing forth from generation to generation. That hissing is a phrase that Isaiah used. It means to whistle. That big, strong kind that I can't do, that gets everyone's attention and lets you know this is where we need to be going. That's what the Book of Mormon is meant to do. To call us to attention. To speak from the dead, to say to us to be more wise than they had been. To speak out of the dust so that we can rise from the dust and be true men and women of God. Verse 29, God shall show unto you that that which I have written is true. So believe in advance. Exercise faith when faith and doubt are still possibilities. Someday we will know this for ourselves. Moroni tells us that here. Nephi told us that in 2 Nephi 33. Jesus told us that back in 3 Nephi. Beat the rush. Someday the world will know that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. Humbly, I express my gratitude for knowing that early, in advance. That is my faith. And it's with that faith, bolstered by the experiences I've had studying these records, that I am now ready to receive the ultimate exhortation that Moroni has to extend to me in this chapter. He's exhorted us to remember the mercies of God. He's exhorted us to pray and ponder about the Book of Mormon and its testimony of Jesus. He's exhorted us to exercise faith in the gifts of God. Exhorted us to lay hold upon those good things, to believe in Christ, to exercise faith unto power. He's exhorted us to remember that all these things are true. With this in mind, Verse 30, again I would exhort you, his ultimate invitation, to come unto Christ, to lay hold upon every good gift, because that's where you'll get them from, to touch not the evil gift nor the unclean thing, because after all, there is someone else that's always extending his own counterfeits. 
The way to judge is as plain as daylight from dark night. No man can serve two masters, but there's always a master to be served. There is one constantly offering you good gifts. And there's another who has no good gifts to give. He's offering the evil gift, the unclean thing. Choose wisely. Verse 31, channeling what he knows from Isaiah, multiple chapters. Awake, arise from the dust, O Jerusalem. Yea, put on thy beautiful garments, O daughter of Zion. Strengthen thy stakes, enlarge thy borders. Do it forever, that thou mayest no more be confounded. When are we finally going to get this right? The Jaredites didn't. The Nephites didn't. Will we? That the covenants of the Eternal Father, which he hath made unto thee, O house of Israel, may be fulfilled? God wants to keep his promise. That's why his word was made flesh. When will there finally be a generation with the faith sufficient to generate the power necessary to bring life and salvation to all of God's children? When will there be a generation to help God keep his covenant, to gather Israel on both sides of the veil, to convince the remnants of God's people that they are not cast off forever? that they too can be part of the seed of Abraham, whereby all the families of the earth can be blessed. This is God's saving work, and it takes all that we have to offer. So wake up, get up, get dressed, put on your beautiful garments, stretch the tent, there needs to be more room for everyone. Strengthen the stakes, lengthen the cords, enlarge the borders, keep your covenants so that God can keep his. The eternal salvation of God's own family is riding on it. Whom shall I send? Here am I, send me. Those were Jesus's words, but in a way those were all of our words as well. In that beautiful Isaiah context, Moroni, who in an earlier chapter even said, search the words of Isaiah, I cannot write them all. Well, here he's trying to pull together from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 54, some other places. It's all happening. It's go time. The Book of Mormon has come forth by the time you'll be reading these words. The great sign that the Father's work has begun and is merely picking up speed, crescendoing towards the coming of Christ, ushering in the millennial reign. So prepare the earth for it. How do we do it? In 32 and 33, he gives us the answer. And it is the message of the Book of Mormon, all summed up in two verses. Yea, come unto Christ. What would stop you from coming now that you know what he's like? Come unto him. Be perfected in him. That ED is the kindest past participle you'll ever see in Scripture. He's not demanding our perfection. He's inviting us to be perfected in him. As I've said in previous videos, chain these verses together. Take Matthew 5.48, be therefore perfect. But don't be overwhelmed. Couple that with 1 Nephi 3.7, that God always provides a way for us to keep any commandment. Well, even that one, the one to be perfect? Yes, especially that one. God will provide a way 
for you to accomplish even that command. Well, what way is that? Next verse, John 14, 6. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. So when the Lord says, I will provide a way for you to keep even the commandment of perfection, Jesus is the way to make that happen. And then bring it all to Moroni 10.32. Be perfected in Christ. You will never do it independent of him. You will see your weakness, and yet you'll keep on coming. He will turn those weak things into strengths. His grace is sufficient. You, in him, can be perfected. What will it require of us? Keep reading. It will require that we deny ourselves of all ungodliness, according to the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 16. That's the definition of taking up the cross. To take up the cross daily is to deny ourselves of all ungodliness. It's to love God above all things. There's the vertical beam in the cross. It's to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the horizontal cross beam of the cross. Every day, to take up that cross, to deny anything that would stand in the way of my loving God with heart, might, mind, and strength, and loving neighbor as myself. Anything self-centered instead of God and other-oriented. Deny yourself of those things. And here's the promise. If ye shall deny yourself of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, there's the vertical post of the cross that you've taken up each day. Then, and only then, is his grace sufficient for you. His grace for you, activated by your love for him. And by his grace, ye may be perfect in Christ. Again, perfection is never possible independent of him. But to be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. See how he ties this back to what he was talking about with the gifts of the Spirit? True belief to unlock God's power in those gifts, look what they've made of you. You cannot deny their effect. By their fruits you shall know them, and you are the ultimate fruit of the power of God. He's turning you into a tree of life. He's turning you into something that will extend his love to anyone who has come and willing to partake of that great gift. Not only can you not deny the power of God, but those who see it at work in you cannot deny it either. The way you treat them is evidence to the contrary. There's something different about the way you love God and the way you love your neighbor. Those are gifts of God's mercy and God's power. Verse 33, he then says again, If ye by the grace of God are perfect in Christ, and deny not his power, giving him the credit where that credit is due, then are ye sanctified in Christ. That's how you reach perfection. You've been sanctified in him. And how does it come? By the grace of God, through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father, unto the remission of your sins. That's how you become holy. That's how you become without spot. That's the Father's covenant. I told you I could bring you home. 
I know the adversary in that war in heaven was trying to leverage risk to the point that you would fear that there'd be no way to come home, that agency was too much a risk, that you were too great a gamble. Well, Jesus is the solution to those problems. Jesus mitigates that risk. My covenant, the Father can say, is that through the grace of God and the shedding of the blood of mine only begotten, you can be cleansed, you can be sanctified, your sins can be remitted, you can become holy, even as he is holy, without spot. Has the Book of Mormon taught you that? Has it confirmed to you the truthfulness of that promise? Lehi's words about agency in 2 Nephi 2, or Jacob's discourse about the atonement of Christ in 2 Nephi 9, King Benjamin's address in Mosiah, Abinadi's dying words of testimony of the atonement of Christ, Alma's questions to the people of Zarahemla, the testimony that he and Amulek bore in Ammonihah, the message of the sons of Mosiah to their Lamanite converts, the words of Helaman and Nephi and Samuel the Lamanite, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the witness of the brother of Jared, the words of Mormon and Moroni. Do you see what this book has been trying to do to you? This is not some mental exercise, not some downloading of ancient history. This is truth and goodness and light and love. This is trying to change us into someone more like Jesus. I bet you all remember what the first word of the Book of Mormon is. It's one of the most famous beginnings of Scripture. And since it's before the Isaiah chapters, we've read it a million times. The word is I. I, Nephi. But Nephi is beside the point here. It's interesting that as we start the Book of Mormon, our first word is about ourselves. It's I. But by the time you get to the end, what did you see in verse 32 and verse 33? You saw Christ, to come unto Christ, to be perfected in Him, to love God, to receive His sufficient grace, to be perfect in Christ by the grace of God and the power of God and the grace of God and perfect in Christ and sanctified in Christ and the grace of God and the shedding of the blood of Christ and the covenant of the Father. Do you see the focal point there? If you study the Book of Mormon from start to finish, it will wean you off yourself and help you focus on the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, which bears witness of the truth of this message. It changes you. It is the most correct of any book upon the earth in spite of the mistakes of men because it helps those who abide by its precepts to draw nearer to God than by those of any other book. That is why this book is keystone scripture. The weight of our own divine potential rests on that keystone promise, the grace of God, the covenant of the Father, the blood of Jesus Christ. I testify of the truth of these words. Born into my soul by the power of the Holy Ghost, as I have spent a lifetime studying these words, it's with that that Moroni can say goodbye to us. In closing his testimony, he says to each of us Latter-day readers, Now I bid unto all farewell. In other words, may you fare 
well. Follow the teachings of this book and you will. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God. Finally, to rest after decades of wandering and working. To go to the paradise of God, escaping the prison of this lonely leadership. To go to rest there until my spirit and body shall again reunite. Emphasizing the resurrection in this final verse. A great source of hope for him, having seen the destruction of his entire people. At that time, he tells us, when I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, the eternal judge of both quick, that means the living, and the dead. Amen. For Moroni, this will be a pleasing bar. He is looking forward to the time of being brought triumphant through the air. When Paul says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, or as Enoch was promised by the Lord, the return of the city of Zion, Jerusalem from above to meet Jerusalem from below. Then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there, and we will receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks and we will kiss each other. You understand that glorious rendezvous that Paul and Enoch and Moroni are all looking to? With that powerful final verse of the Book of Mormon, Moroni has fully shifted from exhortation to anticipation, looking forward to that glorious day when the kingdom of God goes forth so the kingdom of heaven may come, looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ and of the millennial reign of resurrection, of judgment, of sanctification through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Glorious days ahead. And with that, the Book of Mormon comes to an end. Or does it? I don't know who exactly formatted this final page in the Book of Mormon. But if I had a bone to pick with them, if you look at the very bottom of the page, beneath the footnotes, so I'm assuming this was not something that Moroni wrote himself, it says those two words, the end, and it isn't. The Book of Mormon has no end. When I was in divinity school and started to learn all these different types of higher criticism and literary theory, my favorite one was reader reception theory, which speaks to the afterlife of scripture. Scholars sometimes talk about the world behind the text, the, the civilizations, the history, the linguistics, and so forth that, that produced the records that we have in Scripture. Others like to spend their time in the world in the text. What does the book ex itself actually say? But myself, as interesting as it is to see the world behind and the world within, I'm most fascinated by the world in front of the text, the world that the text is speaking to. A great Harvard Islamicist once compared the scholars that study the world that created the Bible with those scholars who study the world's, plural, that the Bible creates. And I remember reading that in my first semester of divinity school and it clicking for me. That's the type of scriptorian I want to be. The kind that studied the worlds that the scriptures create and in my own teaching to try to help create those worlds for my students as well. The scriptures have created my world. My perception of the world I live in 
and my hope for a better world yet to come. So with all due respect to the final page of the Book of Mormon, this is not the end of my Book of Mormon study. In fact, it wasn't even the end of the Book of Mormon experience for Moroni himself. Fast forward 1400 years, and as a young boy prayed to understand his own state and standing before God, something I think common to 17-year-olds, it was time for the Book of Mormon to come forth to usher in the gathering of Israel, to stand as evidence that the work of the Father was commencing upon the earth. And the Lord needed to send an angel to one of great faith and a firm mind seeking every form of godliness, a chosen vessel of the Lord so that he could bear testimony of the things that this angel would reveal to him. Now the Lord has used many angels in the past. Michael has done incredible things and will yet do incredible things before the second coming. Gabriel always seemed to be a trusty messenger sharing the messages from God with chosen vessels upon the earth. But I have to smile when I think of God looking through the hosts of heaven and deciding, which is the angel I should send to a young Joseph Smith to let him know about an ancient record deposited in a hillside near his home? Which angel? Oh, of course, Moroni. That final Book of Mormon prophet, the only one throughout Nephite history that never had the luxury of being able to pass the baton to another living, breathing prophet. Amaron came close, but at least he found a 10-year-old Mormon and entrusted him with the mission of compiling these records, abridging them. But with Moroni, he was left to bury them, the most important thing that his civilization ever produced. There's that beautiful painting. I grew up with it and love it to this day, of Moroni kneeling in the snow burying the plates. And it shows him praying. Now there's no specific record in the Book of Mormon of him praying before he buried the plates, but I'm sure that he did as he entrusted them to the Lord. I'm sure he echoed the prayers of Enos and so many other prophets who preceded him, pleading with the Lord that someday this record would come forth. I doubt that he could have known at that time that he would be the messenger who would finally be able to pass the plates on to another living, breathing prophet. He finally got that chance 1,400 years later. To me, it's like no wonder he was floating above the floor in Joseph Smith's room. He was stoked. I finally get to pass on the plates. There is no end to this book. Its ministry will continue until it is consummated in the coming of Christ. This is the voice from the dust meant to flood the earth with righteousness and truth and gather out the elect from the four quarters of the earth. This is the book that Joseph and Hiram read before they headed off to Carthage, and it was the book that pointed them in the direction of their own life's sacrifice from the beginning. As John Taylor wrote in his eulogy for the prophet and patriarch, the Book of Mormon cost the best blood of the 19th century and it would be brought forth for the salvation of a ruined world. It costs the best blood of a lot of prior centuries too, and it bears witness, more importantly, of the best blood that was ever shed on earth, that of our Savior Jesus Christ. If the Book of Mormon cost all that, I pray we can understand and appreciate what it should cost us, and that it's a price we are willing to pay, a price of study, of pondering, of prayer, of sharing these truths, of living these precepts, of treasuring up continually 
the words of life. Remember what Nephi said in the very first chapter of this book? He described it as a record that he had made with his own hands. And that's when scripture becomes powerful and personal to us. When because of the experiences we have had with it, the things we've written in the margin, the phrases we've underlined, the words we've highlighted, that the scriptures become records that we have made with our own hands. I testify of the power of these words. When Nephi, fresh from his return from Jerusalem with the brass plates in hand, saw his father's reaction to them, that he began searching them and found that they were desirable, yea, even of great worth unto us. Nephi said, Wherefore it was wisdom in the Lord that we should carry them with us as we journeyed in the wilderness towards the promised land. My dear friends, it is wisdom in the Lord that we carry these things with us on our journey toward the promised land. There is so much of that journey that yet lies ahead of us. This year we have traveled from Jerusalem to Bountiful and seen the coming of Christ. But what lies ahead? Palmyra with its sacred grove, Kirtland with the house of the Lord, Missouri with its center spot of the New Jerusalem, Nauvoo, the city beautiful, and a trek west that ultimately brings us to the mountain of the Lord. Again, it will culminate with the coming of Christ, a day I look forward to and long for in hopes that when the Lord comes, he will find faith upon the earth. I invite you to continue on that journey, not just with me as we study the Doctrine and Covenants next year, but far more importantly, to join Jesus as he prepares the earth for his second coming. As Elder Neil A. Maxwell once said, it's not just Armageddon that lies ahead, it's Adam on Diamond.